If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 13. I would like to talk to you about pilgrim worship and that song that you just sang and heard will figure into the nature of pilgrim worship explicitly in about half an hour. (laughs) Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verses 12 through 16. So you watch for where I got the title Pilgrim Worship because it's rooted here, it's pretty plain. Chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city who is to come, which is to come. So we're pilgrims. Here we have no lasting city. We're seeking a city that is to come. Through him then, and and half of this message is built on the word then, which is therefore, Through him, therefore, since you are pilgrims, since you have no lasting city, since you are looking for a city to come, through him, therefore, since you are pilgrims, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And, there's an and in Greek, believe it or not, Second inference that you're drawing from pilgrim status and not only the sacrifice of lips, but do not neglect to do good and share what you have because such sacrifices, you get two, two kinds of sacrifices now, verse 15 and verse 16, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Visible, corporate, Christ-exalting worship has the same, contains the same tension in it, the same paradox in it that all of Christian life does. The tension and the paradox come from this fact. Becoming a Christian makes a person at home in every culture and at odds with every culture. That's the tension that being a Christian introduces you into in every culture, at home, in every culture, at odds. And so it affects the way we live and it affects the way we worship. So let me try to illustrate uh, from scripture these two realities at home and at odds. The tension is rooted in the gospel. Just because of the way the gospel works, this is true. There's a tremendous truth in the gospel that God justifies us by faith alone. This is not a message on that, but You can't understand this tension I'm going to talk about, this pilgrim 
status we live in without the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What that doctrine says, I'm going to quote now from Andrew Walls because he's had a big impact on how I see this, the world in this way. He's a former missionary to Sierra Leone and was professor of missions at University of Edinburgh for a long time until he retired. God accepts us <coughs> as we are on the ground of Christ's work alone, through faith alone, not on the ground of what we have become or what we're trying to become, close quote. And that means then in every culture, people are put right with God before anything changes except faith in an alien righteousness, not a cleaned up culture. Which means in the gospel is embedded the truth that it comes in and makes you part of God's family before anything changes. It wants to be at home here. It wants to go in and land here in this culture. There's not another religion on the planet like this. Islam will never conquer except by force because it cannot enculturate itself the way Christianity does. To be a Muslim is to do things do five things. It's not what Christianity is. Christianity is first, do you believe a message about God putting you right with himself because of something Christ did before anything changes? So this is the origin of the word at home. Christianity moves into every culture on the planet and lands there and makes a people for itself before anything changes. That's the very genius of the incarnation and justification by faith. Let me give you an example from the Bible of, of how this works in justification. Here's Galatians 2.14. It's going to take, by the way, about 15 or 20 minutes to get to this text. I haven't forgotten I read a text. Galatians 2.14, Paul rebuked Peter, you remember this, for acting as though it were wrong to eat with Gentiles when he'd been eating with Gentiles because he was afraid of the Jews that were coming up from Jerusalem and were getting on his case about this. And Paul says to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then in verse 16, he explains where he's coming from, and he says, we know that a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. You see the implication? The very message you and I preach, Peter, says Gentiles do not have to become Jews to get right with God. I'm embedding this message in Gentilishness. And if you go around communicating by who you eat with that it's gotta be another culture, you deny the gospel. Incredible, amazing what Christianity is. One of the scandals of, 
of Christianity in the New Testament was that Gentiles did not have to culturally become Jews in order to become Christians. Justification by faith alone means anyone from any culture in any culture can become a Christian. In any culture can become a Christian. And the way that truth expresses it in missions is that we all believe in planting indigenous churches, meaning that if you go to a totally different culture from the one you grew up in and you want to be a missionary, you, you speak the gospel and people become Christians and it takes on an indigenous form and you don't mash onto it all of American culture or the many cultures in America. You don't squish it in there. It takes root. It flowers in that culture in a unique way. That's what we believe about the way the gospel and the incarnation and justification by faith alone works. It creates justification by faith creates an indigenous principle. Now that's the one that corresponds to, I said, Christianity is at home in every culture and is at odds in every culture. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm just trying to defend the first one at the root of the gospel with justification and, and the preceding incarnation. That's the indigenous principle. Here's the way Andrew Walls now describes the opposite principle. As soon as anybody closes with Christ by faith alone, the Holy Spirit moves in and they immediately start to get worked on and become at odds with parts of their culture. Every culture, every culture puts a Christian at odds with it because there isn't anything but fallen culture. Dallas, fallen culture. Minneapolis, fallen culture. The subcultures in Dallas, all of them, all ethnic cultures, white, black, Asian, and the thousands of subgroupings are all fallen, which means anybody can get saved in any of them. And then, little by little or quickly, we got problems with some aspects of this culture. Here's what he says, Andrew Walls, the professor of missions at University of Edinburgh until a few years ago. Not only, this comes by the way from his book, if you want to read stimulating stuff on missions, The Missionary Movement in Christian History by Andrew Walls, collection of essays. Not only does God in Christ take people as they are, he takes them in order to transform them into what he wants them to be. The necessity of sanctification follows necessarily from justification. Along with the indigenizing principle, which makes his faith a place to feel at home, the Christian inherits the pilgrim principle. So I got two, at home, at odds, indigenous pilgrim, which whispers to him that he has no abiding city and warns him that to be faithful to Christ will put him out of step with his society, all of them, for that society never existed 
east or west, ancient time or modern, which could absorb the word of Christ painlessly into its system. None. It's painful for Christ to enter every culture. The first one he entered killed him. And it happens that way a lot today because the cultures that are left to be penetrated by the church don't want you to come. And therefore, since that's not how we decide where to go, but the king commissions us where to go, there will be lost lives as the painfulness of the incarnation, the painfulness of justification by faith alone penetrates into culture after culture, people after people on this planet. So we have an indigenous impulse. Gospel lands in every culture is at home. And a pilgrim impulse, or you could call it a settler mentality and a sojourner mentality or impulse. The settler mentality is, I'm at home here, this fits here, I can be a Gentile, I can be a Jew and be a Christian. And it doesn't fit anymore. I'm not really like the other Jews and I'm not like the other Gentiles around me. I'm, I'm trying to find a new way in my, in my culture. You can see this kind of thing in the Old Testament just, just briefly. You have the tabernacle, remember? A tent, a tent, just moving around, always moving around, pilgrim principle. And then they built this temple, massive, didn't go anywhere. Queen of Sheba comes to see that. You don't take it to her, right? Both of those are valid. We've seen it in uh, church history. Poor people built cathedrals and they were glad to do it. it took them 100 years to build up because they knew that there'd only be one of these in this whole region, this massive cathedral to represent this world belongs to King Jesus and he's got an outpost here. It's big, it's not going anywhere. I think about this building that way. <laughs> Seriously. I, I have talked to a lot of pastors and I love the expressions of the indigenous and the pilgrim principle in church architecture. Like storefront churches are pilgrim through and through. This embedded where it is in this city with these hotels is incredible. It's just amazing. It says something. We belong here. We're not from another planet. We intend to be citizens here. We intend to make a difference here, be responsible here. And we don't fit here either. I mean, just, just talking with Todd about how he understands church for five minutes let me know that this thing rests lightly on him. The people don't. So that's a big deal. And I'm, I'm saying pilgrim principle and, and uh, indigenous principle are right. Settler mentality and sojourner mentality are both true. You see it in, in worship um, instruments, massive pipe organs, right? They're not going anywhere. Just big, cost a half a million dollars. That's fixed. That's not pilgrim. That's 
two right there. We're staying. We belong. We're making the same sound for a hundred years. <laughs> and then there's a guitar and then there's a keyboard and those things are moving all over the place. You got it on your back. You just boom, you're going. And that's, that's pilgrim. Neither one is false. Many churches, however, need to be called forcefully out of an oversettler mentality into a pilgrim mentality. Um, Christ means to be at home in every culture. Yes, he does. And the incarnation of Jesus and justification by faith push us in that direction. I'll just give you another illustration from the Bible so you can have scripture ringing in your ears regarding this. Romans 3.28. The logic between 3.28 and 3.29 is mind-blowing. Let me give it to you. Romans 3.28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then comes this argument stated with a rhetorical question that begins with the word or. Anytime you hear a rhetorical question that begins with the word or, you know Paul's arguing. He's giving you a reason, a ground. Or is not just true. So here's what it says. He says, we hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? And he's like, what? How does that work? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Which means what? It means if you act like God is the God of the Gentiles only or God is the God of the Jews only, you don't believe justification by faith. Why? Because you are saying or communicating we're justified not by his distinctives alone, but by some distinctives in us. You got to embrace our distinctives, not his once for all perfect distinctives, but our distinctives. When you communicate that, you, you make Christianity play right into the hands of ethnocentrism and you militate against the indigenous principle. It's God to go to the Jews only. We believe in justification by faith. And if you don't get that connection, study your Bible a little more. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, 29, the connection between the two. Worth about an hour's worth of reflection if you tend to be ethnocentric or don't get the connection between justification by faith and the incarnation of the gospel into all cultures. However, I do have to say as I read my New Testament, that the Bible strikes the strongest note on the pilgrim principle. It does. Um, I think some people wish it didn't. You know? Oh, wish, I, wish, I wish he just would talk a little more about how good it is to be an American or you know, good it is to be at home in, in London. I just like London or Dubai or Dallas so much. It just feels so me. And you read the New Testament, you feel like, no, that's not what he's saying. Not mainly. I think that um, we will never reach our neighborhoods. We will never reach our 
networks. We will never reach the nations if we don't call every Christian to a risk-taking, comfort-disturbing, semi-nomadic pilgrim mindset. We all are, I think, more threatened by settling in and this world becoming too much our home than we are by being made too alien. Some are too alien. But not most. Which brings us now to the text. Okay, so back to Hebrews 13. I want to talk about pilgrim worship against that theological, missiological background. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So that's Hebrews' way of saying pilgrim. Whatever city you're in, you look around, you say, this is coming down. This is just It's a big, beautiful city. Minneapolis is a big, beautiful city. Dubai is an incredible city. And it's all coming down. And there is a city that's not coming down. And its sun is God. Its moon is Jesus. And the glory of God will fill it. And we long for it. And so we're aliens here. So that's pilgrim. There's not a comment about missionaries. There's a comment about Christians. Here we have, we Christians have no lasting city. And he says that more than once because the readers of this book were drifting into being too at home in the world. Chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift. This, the church he was writing to was a church that he saw drifting with the current of culture. They had, they had begun so well, persecution, and they, they were totally standing counterculturally for Jesus in their culture, and now it's just starting to drift with, with the flow, and they're just so at home, just so at home with, with Dallas and Minneapolis and America and if we had time, we could trace it out through chapter 10, verse 32 to 35, 11, 9 to 10, 11, 24 to 26, 12, 1 to 2, 13, 13, 14, where we are here. We have no lasting city. This world is not our home as it is. There is a better and abiding possession. We are pilgrims. We're aliens. We're exiles. Our hearts long for, for another king from heaven. Our king is not here. Obama's not our leader. Jesus Christ is our leader. Now, the connection here between 14 and 15 and 16, those two, 14 is the root and 15 and 16 are the fruit. Um, this is where the rest of this message is built on the connection between those two. The pilgrim mindset of verse 14 gives rise to Worship as singing, the sacrifice of lips in verse 15, and it gives rise to the worship of service, hands, in verse 
16. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Now notice the connection, verse 15. Notice the word then in the ESV. Don't know what it is in your version. There is a, a therefore. Through him, through Christ, therefore, because you're pilgrims, because you don't have a city here, let us, and then all the worship guidelines that he's going to talk about, follow. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. That's the worship of singing or speaking. And, verse 16, second inference to draw from pilgrim status, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices. So the lip sacrifice is good and the hand sacrifice is good. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's the worship of service. A worship of singing, worship of of service in verses 15 and 16. Now let's talk for the rest of our minutes together about what I see in these verses, and I hope you will see, are the marks of pilgrim worship in verses 15 and 16. And the first thing I'll say is, by its silence, it's loud, namely style of worship, form of worship, genre of worship is not high on the list of essentials because it's not here. In fact, it's not anywhere in the New Testament. It's incredible. You do a study of worship or gatherings in the New Testament, you can't get much help. For organ versus a guitar, it's not there. Which, you know why that is? Because the Bible is a missionary handbook for every culture. That's why. It doesn't mean to work to confirm your culture. It means to speak to the essentials that work everywhere. And all four of these are going to, I've got four observations, are going to work everywhere. Number one, these are four essentials, four marks of pilgrim worship. I'll just give them to you, and then I'll take them one at a time, and we'll unpack them. Jesus Christ as the mediator of all worship. That's number one. Number two, praise to God as the continual expression of lips. I'm all in favor of lip worship. Number three, practical evidences that your treasure is in heaven, thus revealing the worth of God more than the world. That's number three. And number four, pilgrim worship is pleasing to God because he delights in people who delight more in him than in the world. Okay, let's take those one at a time. Number one, Jesus Christ is the mediator of all worship. Verse 15, through him. Okay, got it? Underline, circle, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our sacrifice of praise goes through Jesus or doesn't get there, which means only Christianity worships the true God. That's a radical thing, gets you skilled in a lot of places. No other religion 
in its worship gets through. Through him, through him we get through or we don't get through. Or if we got through, incendiary, incendiary destruction. Like I read this morning in my devotions that Paul on the way to Damascus, he was reporting to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, I was going to foreign cities to kill Christians and a light shone around me brighter than the sun. Okay, that's a little foretaste of the brightness and the blazing power and heat of the glory of God that we're going to live in and without the asbestos covering of Christ, we will perish. So either they don't get through or they get through and perish. Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody worships God except through me. This is just massive. It's a little word, through him then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise. Here's the way he says it in chapter 725. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have an intercessor every minute of every day in worship, in church, in worship, at work. All of our life, going to God in praise, either with hands or with lips, through Jesus or not at all. Same thing, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, let us draw near the true heart in full assurance of faith. So if you need a picture, picture Jesus split right down the middle like the curtain. You walk through that split or not at all. Get blood all over you that way. No other way. His flesh was the curtain. The curtain splitting was his flesh. We go through that curtain into the Holy of Holies or we don't go at all because we would be destroyed. You get killed in the Holy of Holies. Nobody goes into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And we have one and only one. So it is astonishing, however, that there is something more amazing than that in Hebrews concerning how you go to God the Father through the Son in worship. It's found in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. You might want to look at this because, and, and write it down in a note because this is going to be new to, I would guess, about 80% of you. I didn't see this for decades. He is not ashamed to call them, that is us, to call us brothers, saying, and now this is, a, this is Jesus speaking. This is Christ. It's a quotation from Psalm 22, but you read the context in Hebrews 2 and you'll see this is Christ speaking the Psalms. I, t I will tell of your name to my brothers. So Jesus, the Son, the Christ, speaking to the Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You say, Whoa, really? 
David said that, and Hebrews says that was a type or a forecast, foretaste of what Jesus would be for his people, which means every time we sing in the Holy Spirit, the lead singer moving into heaven is Jesus. And if, if how could the Father not be pleased with such a worship service or singing over the sink at home? No, you're doing a duet every time you sing. Or Jesus is the invisible lead singer because that's what it says. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. That's verse 12, Hebrews chapter 2. So my, my answer to the question, what's the first mark of pilgrim worship? It is always mediated by Jesus in the sense that he paid for our sins. He clothes us with an asbestos righteousness. The Father does that. It's not Jesus versus the Father. It's the Father enabling us to come to the Father through Jesus and only through trust in his blood and righteousness can we come and we come with him at the head of the choir. Him singing. You know, it says one time in the Gospels, and they sang a song and went out into the garden. <laughs> I wrote a poem about that one time. I, just, I was so moved thinking, what did it sound like when Jesus sang? You sing bass? <laughs> Tenor? Was it, was it good? Was it scratchy? Clear? You know, Dylan? Well, now that he's risen, I think we might be destroyed by the sound of his voice if, if we weren't prepared for it. That's number one, through Jesus we worship in those two ways. Number two, praise to God as the continual expression of the lips, continual lips. Verse 15, through him then, let us continually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go after that word real hard, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips, fruit of lips. It's a fruit of something. Worship at its essence is in the heart. It's given, it bears fruit at the lips that acknowledge his names. So I'm gonna give you three senses that I see of what continual means. Number one, not just Sabbaths. Sundays and Christmas and Thanksgiving, not just that, but every day. When, when the psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, he didn't mean Sunday. I grew up hearing that read on Sunday a hundred times, thinking, oh, God bless Sundays. <laughs> God likes Sundays. No, he does. That, that's every day. That's every day in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day, you wake up in the morning, this is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice and be glad in it. Don't let the fruit of lips just be on some days. All days. That's number one. Number two, continual in the sense that every word that comes out of your mouth ought to be rooted 
in your treasuring of God as supremely valuable above all things, which means that every, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said, okay? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means, what's the abundance in here? The treasure in this clay pot in here is the infinite value of the glory of God in Christ expressed in the gospel. And everything I think, everything I feel, everything I say ought to be shaped by that valuing of Christ above all things. So that when it comes out, it has the flavor, the salty flavor that it is reflecting. I value Jesus above all things. Whether you teach in math, or giving instructions on the street. It's all partly intuitive after you become a Christian, partly consciously. It's coming out of your mouth, shaped by your valuing of God, which means it's worship. So always, the fruit of lips, the fruit of lips, let nothing come out of your mouth, but what is good for upbuilding, that it may minister grace to those who hear. And how does it do that? By showing the value of Jesus in everything you do and say. That's number two. And this may be the most important one, this third one of what continual means. And this is where, though he slay me, is relevant. The song. Not only in the good days, but the hard days. Continual. Through him then, let us offer up continually a sacrifice of praise to God though he slay me. The implications for worship here are very, very, very great. Life does not consist in sequences of praise God times and criticize God times. There are no criticize God times. Period. If you do it, you're out of step. God is never subject to criticism, ever, about anything he does. He's perfect. It is not a good thing to criticize God. He can handle it if you do it. Don't compound that sin with hiding it. I'm sure this church would agree with that, that we want our churches to be a place where you can sin like that but I'm not gonna approve it. I will hug you until you change your mind. (laughs) I could point to many examples where that's happened, seriously. Lose a kid, get angry at God, Piper comes in, won't let you go. (laughs) Doesn't approve, don't approve. God should never, ever be faulted with anything. He's God. We shouldn't get angry with God. Of course, you all do. So you might as well be honest about it. The psalmist did too. And it wasn't a good thing. So, what is a good thing? Continual praise is a good thing. That song is a good thing. That's amazing. Or... Before I knew that song, I knew Matt Redmond's Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world is all as it should be, 
Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the road is marked with suffering, when there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. You give and you take away. You give and you take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Amen. When, when I see a young family respond like that, I just bow down and worship when they've lost their child. When the dad has cancer or the finances aren't reaching. I said to Noel last night, it was Valentine's, we were pensive, reflective, 48 Valentine's together, <laughs> two of them before we were married, not sleeping together, but you know. <laughs> we really didn't. But really, really in love. Wishing we could sleep together. In fact, <laughs> in fact, we like the song, wouldn't it be nice if we were married? Wouldn't have to wait till long. People actually sang like that back then. I mean, they had standards. You couldn't even sing that song today. I was, I was like, what? Just go, man. Just sleep. <laughs> Which, which, which is tragic. A lot of young people in here just don't go there, all right? Now, what, what was I saying? <laughs> we, okay, last night I said to Noel in one of our pensive moments, we, at, at 68 and whatever she is, <laughs> um, we we live with the cards we're dealt physically because we know who deals. And he never, ever deals badly, ever. And you, you embrace the hand you've got in your hand. And you say, that's not the hand I wanted. That's right, it's not. But he's God and blessed be his name. My heart will choose to say. So that's the last meaning of continual. Continual sacrifice of lips. Good times, bad times. Gives, takes. My heart will choose to say, blessed be the Lord. And you worship leaders or all of you who are participants in worship, think that way. Help the people sing these amazing truths about God's goodness in sovereignty. Let me read you an example of this, of how it sounds in the lips of a woman who just lost her husband at age 54. His name was Jonathan Edwards, and his wife was named Sarah, and he had preached in her hearing for 23 years, and this is what she had learned. She wrote to her daughter to tell her daughter that dad is dead. And she said, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that, he, that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. 
Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. That is the kind of woman I admire a lot. Number three, two more traits of pilgrim worship, and they're not as long as that one. Number three, practical, this this worship, now we're in verse 16, this this worship involves practical evidences that your treasure is in heaven, not on the earth. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share, so be generous, do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices, and now we know we're still at worship. He didn't shift, he hasn't changed his topic here. He got sacrifice in verse 15 of the lips. He got sacrifice of the hands and the wallet. In verse 16, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, why is that? Why is doing good to people and being generous with people, with your resources, why is that worship or pleasing to God? And the answer is because when you act for the sake of another rather than use them, you exist for their good rather than making them exist for your good, you give them money rather than trying to get money, 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 get, 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 get. When, when it looks like that, people start to look at you and they say, you know what, it looks like your treasure is something other than money. It looks like your treasure is something other than comfort and ease. And it looks like you might have a, something going on different than most of Dallas, just different. Like your life seems not to revolve around getting, but around giving. And then you may have an occasion to give them a word of explanation. I think that's what Peter means when he says, be ready to give an answer for the hope. Hope, I'm, I'm hoping in something other than money. I'm hoping in something other than you meeting all my needs. What am, I, what am I hoping in? I'm hoping in him, the risen Christ. I'm, I'm hoping that I've got a treasure just around the corner so I don't need to fret about treasures now. I'm gonna be a billionaire in about, what, for me, 18 years if I live like my dad. Last six years with Alzheimer's. I'm gonna be a billionaire. <laughs> Can you imagine me spending the last 18 years of my life trying to put some money in a bank? Is that insane? It is if you're 32, by the way. 30. It's insane to try to get rich. You kill yourself. You're going to own the world. That's what the Bible says. Why do you boast in men? All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or life or death or the world. It's all yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Why would you fret about making anything yours now? Doesn't that produce a lifestyle that causes people to say, whoa, Where's your treasure? Uh, where are you getting your identity? Where are you getting your confidence? Where, what, what is all that? And you say, look, I, I'm just passing through. I'm a pilgrim here. I have a, an inheritance. My father's very rich. <laughs> well, why don't you live like it? Because, okay, a little riff on prosperity theology. <laughs> the, the, the problem, the problem with with prosperity theology is that it is over-realized eschatology. That means, in case that word misses you entirely, (laughs) 
That means it's pretending like heaven should be now. That's not what the New Testament says. Heaven is for heaven. The inheritance is when you die. And in the meantime, do good. Share, share, share. Why? Because this is worship. How is it worship? Because it shows the worth of my treasure in heaven. Worship are acts that show the worth of God. Giving shows that. Sharing and doing good and spending yourself and laying down your life for a people group that hasn't been reached or some needy group here in Dallas that you're just pouring yourself out for others. It makes you look like you must treasure God more than you treasure convenience. It's worship. That's how it works. So the hands scream the value of God as they give and give and give because he's our treasure. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on the earth, where no moth and rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the third mark of pilgrim worship is that we do good and we share in such a way as to give evidence that our treasure is God in heaven. Pilgrims travel light. Number four and concluding. 16 again, pilgrims please God in this worship. Why? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Why do they please God? Because what pleases God is what reflects his value. What pleases God is a people who find more delight in God than in things, more delight in God than family, more delight in God than ministry. God is pleased. Here's the way it's spoken in Hebrews eleven six: Without faith... It is impossible to please God for, now he explains what he means by faith here, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Oh, what pleases God? When he's your reward. You gotta believe that he's there and that he's really, really worth having, worth knowing, more to be desired than anything else. Then he's pleased. Without faith, it is impossible to please him because faith does two things. It believes he's there and that he's better than anything. And then God is pleased. When you live in such a way that you make him look infinitely valuable, Sunday morning, I get, I'll, I'll close with this and then I'll give you just a three minute summary. Um, I've heard many pastors say over the years, this church would be a better place and we got more done. There'd be a better spirit here if you'd come to give and not get all the time. 
I heard that. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. That is absolutely insane to say that. God is pleased by our recognizing our need, his bounty, our bankruptcy, his riches, our folly, his wisdom, our weakness, his strength, our emptiness, his fullness, our hunger, his rich food, our thirst, his fountain. What I want on a Sunday morning, and I want this in my church, I want it in any church where I go, I want people to come hungry, hungry, desperately hungry for God. My job is to spread a bank, spread a banquet, which they then eat and say, oh, oh, he is so, God is so amazing. He's so satisfying to the hunger I brought in here. Now, you may have had breakfast with God earlier. It'd be great. Very few people do. They eat real breakfast and not God breakfast. And so they come with bellies full and hearts empty. That's okay. That's okay. As long as they know where the food is found. And it's found here. So don't be one who diagnoses the problem in your church as saying the people don't come to give. No, they, they are coming uh, with their belly stuffed full of the white bread of the world so that they have no need, no perceived need, no hunger. They got all the money they want. They got all the food they want. They got all the relationships they want. And they're here for what? I want them to be hungry. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who have faith believe that he rewards. He rewards He is for them everything they need. So here's my closing summary. In great love for the world, God sent Jesus Christ to save sinners and recruit and make worshipers. He did it by the incarnation into every culture. He did it by justification by faith. Justification by faith creates an indigenous principle where Christianity is at home in every culture. There is no Christian culture on this planet. Christianity embeds itself in every culture on the planet. And as soon as it does, the fruit of sanctification begins and we are put at odds with every culture so that there is a pilgrim principle. We have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. And as we seek that city and love that city and are satisfied by that future city with its light streaming back into our lives, there are four principles of how to worship God, both in congregations and on the street. Number one, pilgrim worship ascends to God through Jesus or not at all. And he's the lead singer as we go. Number two, pilgrim worship praises God with lips continually in the worst worst times and, and the best times the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed, through tears, through agonizing tears, blessed be the name of the Lord. Number three, pilgrim worship gives practical evidence that God is our treasure by the way we do good and share. And fourth, pilgrim worship therefore pleases God because God delights in us when we delight more in him than in things.
Father in heaven, I plead with you for myself to live in this amazing privilege of being your child. I ask, oh God, that you would open my heart and all of our hearts to what it is to be justified by faith alone and to be sanctified so that we are both at home in Dallas, Minneapolis, Dubai. We're at home here and we're not at home. We're at odds here. Oh, give every one of us, Lord, the discernment of how to walk the razor's edge of being at home and at odds with our culture and then cause us to overflow in the worship of lips, in the good times and the hard times, and with the worship of hands in radical generosity and service to other people that makes the world look and say, you just must have a, a treasure different from mine. I ask this in Jesus' name.